I have in mind to talk about tonight is that um, there's two parts. I want to talk about how everything that we're doing when we call ourselves practicing, all the different techniques that we talk about here, all the ways that we live here, the lifestyle that we keep here, the different meditation techniques that we talk about and that we practice. I think it's all in the service of cultivating um, a mind that's steadfastly spacious and warm-hearted towards everyone and everything. I think that's the story of what we're meant to do in this life, really, to cultivate a mind that's steadfastly spacious and warm-hearted to everyone and everything. I think that's the meaning of liberation. I think it's the end of suffering. I think it's the source of happiness. And I think that what we do here in this very odd kind of unusual way of living and practicing that isn't at all like the rest of our life is really a direct way to cultivating that kind of mind. And I want to tell you, uh, first of all, about that kind of mind, and second of all, how the different ways in which we practice cultivate that kind of mind. So first I want to tell you a few stories on uh, last Saturday, I uh, flew down to Los Angeles to uh, go to several days of teachings, several days of parties, really celebrating the 80th birthday of His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And um, I, uh, my, my leaving was a little bit more uh, rushed than I had planned because the day before, uh, I'd had a series of... Uh, texts from my friend from Washington, D.C., who had invited me to come. She'd say, I'm going to, she'd said, I'm going to Los Angeles. Why don't you meet me there? We'll stay with so-and-so. It'll be great. I said, okay. And the day before, I got all these texts that said, uh, your arrival time tomorrow is now too late to, to go to this extra teaching that His Holiness is doing. It's the best teaching in this extra one that's earlier. So get yourself on the 6 o'clock in the morning plane, and then I'll pick you up at the airport, and we'll go. So at 4.30, I was on the bus and going to the airport, and then I'm at the airport at 5.30. And I wasn't distressed about it. I was okay about it. But I, I realized retrospectively that I hadn't slept well, and I'd gotten up, and I'd gotten there, and uh, got, walked all the way down through the, uh, the um, terminal. And uh, I, was, I was awake, but I wasn't really awake. I was just kind of, I mean, I was capable of transporting myself, but kind of in that fog of, you know, got up at uh, what my um, flight attendant's friends called o, call O-Dark 100, and here I am, and I sit down uh, at, the, at the gate to wait, and there's a woman sitting next to me. I notice her because she's a woman of a mature age, not as old as I, it turned out, because she was going to visit her 95-year-old mother in Fort Lauderdale, for which she had to fly to Los Angeles and then fly to Fort Lauderdale. And I noticed that her arm was in a sling, in kind of a cast and in a sling, and so we, you get to talk, and she tells me, she tells me uh, quite a lot about her, that she uh, lives in uh, the Bay Area now, but she had lived all of her life in the Central Valley with her husband because that's where he got a teaching job, and it was far from all their family, so now they're retired. Now they moved to the Bay Area, but her mother's in Fort Lauderdale. And uh, 
she really has to go and see the mother because she misses her. And she had just gotten back. I asked her about the uh, arm and the sling. She said she'd just gotten back from a, a, a cruise that they had planned for a long time. And there was a 28-day cruise leaving from somewhere on the south coast, uh, uh, somewhere around Fort Lauderdale, I suppose, and going down to South America and into the Amazon. And on the second day of the cruise, there had been really turbulent weather in the Atlantic, and the, the ship had lurched, and she'd fallen down. She'd hurt her elbow, and at the next port, they'd put in and had it x-rayed, and they said, well... We think it'll be all right. She said, I really wanted to go on that cruise. So she continued on the 28 days through the Amazon on various painkillers. But she said, we had a good time. And then she came home, and here she is now going again. So I'm talking to her, and I'm thinking, wow, she's in a really cheerful mood. I was really impressed with, here she is. She's got her suitcase that she's got to get on board. It's early in the morning. She's been traveling. And she's really all right about this. She said, well, you know, it happens on the cruise. So the rest of the cruise was okay. You know, I took painkillers. I was really impressed with her. And at that point, I got up and I went up to talk to the, the boarding people about something or other about my ticket. And they just stopped to make an announcement. And they said, uh, by the way, as we're starting to board, uh, this is, uh, let's call her Linda. This is Linda. And she's going with her family down to Disneyland, and there were a mother and a father and three other siblings. And Linda is the recipient of a Make-A-Wish trip to Disneyland. So you know, ah, people get Make-A-Wish trips when they have really terrible, terrible illnesses. And this is kind of that really sad, what wish do you want? So let's applaud for Linda. So here we are early in the morning, applauding for Linda and her family, who are all smiling and taking pictures and the flight attendants. That they, anyway, and I'm thinking, I'm looking around and I'm thinking, wow, people are incredibly heroic. Here are Linda and her family in a dire situation, and they're smiling and they're taking Linda to Disneyland under this cloud of what's going on with Linda. And my new friend with the elbow, who against you know, really early in the morning going to see her mother. And I turn around to see where she is, and she's gone. And I felt bad about that. What happened to her? I was going to help her with a suitcase getting on the airplane. And then we got on the airplane. And as I boarded, I saw that she was installed. And I guess that some airport people had come with a wheelchair and put her on board. And I was so happy to see her, like a long-lost friend. And I realized that just in that little talking together, I'd adopted her. And she, me, she told me our whole story. And I felt, I was so aware as I sat down, that if I had had any thought about what am I doing so early in the morning, schlepping to Los Angeles, I was absolutely high. I was exhilarated by connections with people. And when you get exhilarated, for the most part, the, the fog goes out of your mind and you look around and you think, people are heroic. Look at this. Everything happens to everybody. You're planning to go to the Amazon on a trip, and on the second day out, you mess up your elbow. Oh, she'd shown me. She said, you see, I have these two boxes of uh, orthopedic devices to practice to, re to get my elbow back. Otherwise, it might never operate well again. But you know what happens like that. I think people are heroic. You plan one thing, you get something else. In her case, not dire, but here is Linda and her family, and they're going. I looked around and I thought, you know, 
I'm in awe of people. People are fantastic. Things happen, you don't expect it. That's actually like the fundamental teaching of the Buddha and every other wisdom teaching. Things keep happening, you plan one thing. I used to have a sign up in my bathroom years ago, a big poster, it said, life is what happens while you are making other plans. And really, it does. And we keep adopting and adapting and managing ourselves. We got down to, I was wide awake and I was aware about of what a pleasure it is to be wide awake and feeling connected and feeling in awe of other people and feeling spontaneously wishing that this woman's elbow gets better and that Linda gets better. I talked to some boys just as we stood up at the end of the flight, we're getting off and they, they looked like 11 or 12 year old boys and they were all excited because they were going to Disneyland. So we had a discussion about which is their favorite ride, which is my favorite ride, and why it's the favorite ride. And I was just in such a excited mood of how possible it is for human beings to acknowledge each other and wish each other well. I liked all these people. I felt so picked up by my own well-wishing mood. And later I thought, you know, I'm going to teach that at the retreat, that cultivating goodwill it's very nice for other people but it's fantastic for your own self you know it's really we are the principal recipients of our own goodwill for other people it makes you feel alive it makes you feel connected the Dalai Lama answered one question this way somebody asked him in one of the question and answer periods they said um how do you feel? You know, you're talking to us here and there are a lot of people here and you speak, we ask questions and you speak and you're the Dalai Lama. How do you feel, recognize if thinking I'm the Dalai Lama and I'm speaking to everybody here and not only the people here are listening to me, but all these cameras are taking pictures of you at this time. They're live streaming it all over the world. Who knows where in the world people are listening to you. Then how do you feel about that? He said, well, he said, I don't feel like I'm the Dalai Lama talking to everybody out there. I feel like I'm just talking. He said, if I felt like I was the Dalai Lama and I was talking to everybody out there, he said, I would have to remember that there's only one Dalai Lama and there's everybody else out there and I'd be alone by myself and everybody else would be there and I'd be a very lonesome person. (laughs) I thought it was fabulous. That was really... And that was the most of his lesson, that we really need to figure out in this world. He was quite serious. And there were presentations about climate change and other very serious kinds of problems facing the world in this next several decades. And he said the thing that people are going to have to realize is that we are all really all the same. We look different on the outside and we come from different places and we talk different languages. But he said, but really... All human beings are really just the same. They want so much to feel happy and to feel safe. Just the things that we are practicing and saying as we begin to practice, particularly using a practice mantra, may I feel safe, may I feel happy, may I feel strong, may I live with ease. That's what everybody wants. He said everybody wants the same thing. So when I remember that, I feel like I'm not separate from everybody. I really thought about that a lot. 
the moment, the thing that I thought about when I was getting off the plane, I thought, oh, I really feel so much different from these people. What would I say about how I felt? And I, I, the word that came to me is I said, I felt touched. Like it was touching to me that this woman was going to see her mother and was determined to keep a good attitude about the Amazon and the elbow. said, I might not be able to straighten it again, but I'm hoping I will. We're always hoping. Human beings are incredibly touching because they're hoping it'll get better. There's something amazing about that. You have desire to go on in spite of things. We heal from losses. If you think about life, really, we've all gotten however far along in our lives we've gotten, during which time we have sustained myriad losses. Many of us have lost both of our parents and siblings. In a room with this many people in it, it's quite likely that someone has lost a child along the way or a sister, or a brother. And those have been terrible for us, and we've come along, and we've lost our health in one way or another, or our vitality, and certainly our youth. We've lost the idea of decades of future where we could become something else. And still we go on, and we're eager for a good tomorrow, for ourselves and for our kin. What His Holiness was saying is he said, you know, wishing well for kin, he said, is a normal thing. He said all animals do that, whether they wish well, but he said all animals care for their kin. He said human beings are the only animals that can make everybody their kin. And I thought that was probably the loveliest thing he said all the weekend, that we're the only ones that can expand the kin to everyone. And what we'll do this week, literally, is we'll think of our closest kin and our next to the closest kin and not so close and the people we kind of know and the people that we have some problems with and really all the people because it's easier just to say, well, okay, I'll just relax all the stories I have about who I like and who I don't like. We're held so hostage by our stories of who we like and who we don't like. If we accidentally forget the stories, we could accidentally like everybody. And it would be such a relief, you wouldn't have to remember. And you know, we, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't become silly about it, like we'd know who it was safe to be around and who not. But we wouldn't have to carry all these notebooks with who hurt your feelings. Which I have too. You know, when I went on my first mindful, uh, meta retreat, I, hadn't, I didn't know very much about it at all. I'll tell you some more about it later on. I want to talk about the technique of, specific technique of metta. But I kind of knew that you uh, thought well wishes, good wishes, in a graduated way from your closest, easiest. Uh, I loved it that Temple talked this afternoon about starting with what's easiest. Starting with what's easiest, where you don't have to push yourself, where you're easily moved and then moving on and I remember hearing in the uh, in in those days uh, 25 30 years ago uh, we taught in the language in traditional language with what we are now calling um, people with whom we have difficulties were in those days called the enemy now we have more PC talk about it but the truth is that the mind is not PC 
when it thinks about the people who have hurt you, it does not think people I have difficulty with. It says people who are my enemies. You know, but we don't tell people that because it's not nice. But, but I thought to myself at that time, well, that's, it'll be a piece of cake for me. I don't have any enemies because I'm really quite fortunate in my life. And I don't have any devastating, terrible things that anybody did on me. But I was amazed to find what a long list I had, actually, of people who had did little not nicenesses to me <laughs> that I had written down, like in a secret notebook that you keep, like a secret scroll, really, and you keep it, you keep it furled up somewhere in the back of your mind, and one small hint, and you unfurl the scroll. Do you know that scene in the Mikado where he sings, I'm the Lord High Executioner? And he says, I've got a little list. And he reaches into his kimono and he takes out a list and he says, I have a little list of people who never would be missed. And then he reads and he opens up the scroll. We all have lists of people we wouldn't be too unhappy not to run into again. But it's burdensome to carry around a list. All the better to forget it. You remember it when they come around, but why have the trouble of carrying a list? The main point about feeling touched at the end of that plane flight. So when you feel touched, you feel really viscerally alive and awake. I, th- I was thinking of how to explain it. It's not as if I was drowsy in the airport. I was awake enough to get myself there and walk around. But you go from awake to really awake. You know, sometimes you read about awakening experiences and marvelous and uh, otherworldly kinds of realizations. It wasn't otherworldly, it was this worldly. But it was the difference between ordinary and really feeling in your body vibratingly alive. Look at this. People going, coming early in the morning, wanting so well, much to get there safely. When you think when you when the plane touches down, everybody just hurries to whip out their cell phone. But you know, I, I realized as I touched down, I thought, you know, it's kind of a miracle. You get in an iron machine, and in less than an hour, you're transported at 35,000 feet from San Francisco to Los Angeles. Imagine when people walked there or went on a, in a horse and buggy or even in a car. It's, a whole, it's amazing. It takes off full of people, and it flies in the air, and it lands safely. It could have been other, but it wasn't. I think all the time we would be falling down in amazement if we stopped to look around and say, that was it, we just flew. (laughs) So I was thinking about, really thinking about practices, not only overcoming sadness and meeting difficulty with equanimity, but cultivating that kind of awake sense of aliveness in the world that really clears out the cobwebs in the mind. It's probably more valuable dharma term than cobwebs. But I think that what happens is that the the mind, for me at least, the mind gets filled with stories and, you know, not terribly distressing, but a little bit of this, 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 and then all of a sudden it's clear. You wake up and then you see everybody's out, there's a world out there. You know how I notice it happens that way? Uh, a lot, uh, walking down on, on New York Street, I visit my friends on Upper Broadway. The whole world is on Upper Broadway. Every shape and size and color and age and ability is all on Upper Broadway. 
And often I'm walking from where my friend lives on 100th Street down to 74th Street where I teach. And you can walk uh, a long way and be planning what you're going to teach and not see what's going on all around you. And you're just planning and you're walking safely and feeling good enough. And, and all of a sudden maybe a horn honks very loud. It's like a mindfulness bell, loud honking of horn. And it's like you wake up and it's really like the lights go on. You look around and you say, look at this, all these people going somewhere, wanting it to work out. And in that moment, that what sounds so mysterious is I feel like I'm one with all of those people. You do. You forget your story and whether or not you'll do well in the teaching or you won't do well and what if you don't do well. All those kinds of stories which are just the chatter of the mind with its habitual habits, they fall away in the moment that you wake up. You wake up sometime from a honking horn. You wake up with anything that startles the mind into awakeness. While you're here, you notice when you're walking up and down the hill, something uh, amazing happens. Like all of a sudden the turkeys walk in front of you and they're so bizarre looking, you know, and they stick out their tails and they wobble so ridiculously. And you think, what was God thinking? You know, that there's... But they, they amaze. Don't they amaze you, those turkeys? And the, in the moment of amaze, in that moment, you think, I'm glad I'm alive. I hope everybody here feels good. Because the mind gets picked up over the trivial stories of the this isn't good, that isn't good, I'm sleepy, I'm tired. Another eight days. Ah, oh, I can't say another eight days. Oh. And there are the turkeys, and you're fine. And in the moment that you're fine, you just grab that fine and, and go with it. Say, whoa, I'm awake. May all beings be awake. May all beings be happy. May all beings be peaceful. It's not just to be okay and make it through. It's to put yourself up so you're over the normal stuff and looking around and thinking life is amazing. There was something else that the Dalai Lama said that I really wanted to tell you about. What was it? Oh, I know. This is a really, I, I felt a little sad about somebody asking this question. I thought, that's a silly question. But anyway, that was a, that's an opinion. I think it's, anyway, it's a reasonable opinion, I think. <laughs> somebody, I probably, had I been in that moment more exuberant, more um, exhilarated, I want to say, exuberant than the text is the uh, near enemy of... Um, appreciation, so we'll come back to that. We'll say exhilarated, buoyed up, awake. Uh, someone said, uh, I was a little bit embarrassed, actually, for the, for the asker, uh, who said, uh, for the asker of this question, who said, uh, it was one of the people running the appreciation ceremony, and this person said, you know, you're 80 years old, um, and you're still working so tirelessly, going here and going there and doing this and doing that. I said, but you're 80 years old. Why are you still working? You could relax. You did so much. You could relax. Honestly, they said you could kick back, put your feet up. I'm thinking, oh, what are you saying to his holiness here? Anyway, <laughs> he somehow missed the cultural glitch there. Uh, and he, oh, he didn't miss it and rode over it. And he, he seemed quite surprised. And he said, uh, but uh, doing what I do is the point of my life. I thought, that's it, really. Doing what I do is the point of my life. 
I do what I do because that's what I do. I thought about that and I thought, the sense of having a point to your life and the point of your life being there for other people is really such a, such a liberation. I think that the, the other people part, which he is continually talking about, feel yourself to be part of the other people, so takes you out of yourself and so takes you out of the possibility of imploding into uh, self-referential worries and habits and imploding, kind of. He said, you know, at the, he didn't say that this time, but I think of it as being one of the things I learned from him. He said there are um, then six billion people on this planet, now coming on seven. He said, if you're only interested in your own happiness, it's, a, it's you know, sometimes you feel happy, sometimes not. He said, the chances, if you're interested in everybody else's happiness, in, as well as your own, it, but are uh, seven billion to one that you'll be happy because there are seven billion people out there whose happiness could be making you happy. And it so much makes sense to me if my identification is we are all flying to Los Angeles. We're all flying around the cosmos on this third rock from the sun and hoping to come to the end of our time here in a good way with good experiences. And everybody else on it is too. One of the things on the Metta Sutta that makes it such a radical document is, uh, is the phrase omitting none, wishing in gladness and in safety. The Metta Sutta is one of those things that I carry with me whenever I, whenever I go anywhere, I have it with me. Uh, whenever I go to teach, I don't take much with me and I don't take books. I take things to keep notes in so I could make notes for teaching. But I take, um, I take a couple of poems. Um, I ta- I've been taking for the last several months um, a quote that I didn't know until recently of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., that says, forgiveness is not an occasional act, it's a permanent attitude. And I've been carrying that around with me because I like to say that every chance I get. It means for me, in every minute, not having a problem with that minute, not being angry at it, not being negative about it, having enough wisdom in the mind to know that suffering is having a problem with what's happening. Suffering is insisting that this minute or this moment, or this time, be different from what it is. That's the second noble truth. The first noble truth is life is inevitably challenging because it's always changing, and we're always adapting to new things. The second noble truth is suffering, is the inability of the mind to accommodate the truth of this moment. And forgiveness is the ability to say, this is what's happening. A lot of times we wish it were other, but it's not. But to be able to forgive the person and to forgive the moment, not to not realize that we're hurt by it or pained by it, but not in addition to the pain to have uh, the resistance to it. And in fact, it's the very resistance to the moment that registers as suffering. It's tension in the mind and tension in the body. I've been thinking a lot, especially in this last year, about how the 
the, the what I'm teaching gets easier and easier. I think to myself, I'm, I, I try to stay aware of becoming tense in my mind and tense in my body, even before I know what it's about. And um, I remember this afternoon, I said, oh, this at noontime today, I said that uh, my friend uh, Joseph Goldstein's favorite mantra, he says for himself, is, it's all right, just relax. And I say to myself, when something's happening, I say, relax, sweetheart, we'll figure it out, we'll just do this. That suffering, there's lots of pain in life, and there's a lot of pain that we can't avoid, and a lot of joy as well. And suffering is that particular, in the, in, the, in the lexicon of what the Buddha taught, when he taught the end of suffering, it wasn't the end of pain. It's the end of struggle with what can't be changed. Sometimes there are things that are painful and we can change them. And it's certainly not a, a practice of quietism. We change everything that we can. Just that very question, why, uh, <clears throat> asking the Dalai Lama why he's still working. Because there's still suffering in the world and still pain in the world. But not to, not to create suffering extra. And the only way to do that is with wisdom in the mind. He kept saying, well, you need to have is two things. You need to have insight. Insight into the nature of things, that things are always changing, that everything that arises passes away, that you can't hold on to things, that suffering is tension in the mind when it's unable to accommodate, and that the end of suffering is a possibility. That's the third noble truth. Not the end of pain, just the end of suffering. It's a mind that's able to say, this is what's happening now. I wonder what will happen next. Just resting in this moment. And that it's our birthright, really, to be able to do that. We have habits of the mind, and conditions of the mind, and that periodically cause the mind to not be able to be at ease with what's going on. And what we are working on in techniques for here and not on retreat and in life is how to really relax enough, let the mind settle down, either see through the clouds in the mind or see their actually insubstantiality that they'll pass or really understand so clearly that suffering is the inability of the mind to relax and learn techniques for the relaxing of the mind. Learn to be able to forgive the moment for being what it is and the world for being what it is. He said we need two things. We need insight that amounts to wisdom about how things are. And he said we need warm-heartedness, not just insight. Warm-heartedness to really empower and condition and motivate the mind to reach out with affection and goodwill. He said goodwill is our natural birthright. The reason that we're not in touch with it all the time is sometimes we've had so many clouds build up and we're so tired and we're so confused. And we're overstimulated. But we could practice. And all of the Eightfold Path 
our ways of developing insight. So as we get wiser, really um, supported by goodwill for ourselves, I was so enjoying Temple's teaching this afternoon because so frequently he said, be really kind to yourself. Think of a time when you felt really sweetly cared for. I thought that's such a nice way to say that. When you say that, that's what comes up in the mind. I remembered something that I hadn't remembered in a while. Think of another one. And I really so appreciated the invitation to take care of our own minds, to console ourselves. There was a movie recently this year called Monk with a Camera. Did you see that? Vicky, uh, Nikki Vreeland, uh, the, uh, the heir to the editor-in-chief of Vogue magazine, surprisingly, is a Tibetan monk in charge of a monastery in India. So that's an, a strange thing for the grandson of, but, you know. And one of the things that he says in, his, uh, in an interview in this documentary, they say, what do you, what's your practice, you monks? And he says, we console ourselves. And I thought it was such a lovely word. What we're doing here is we're consoling ourselves the way mothers... You know, there's a line in the sutra that says, just as a mother, we give her life to protect her one and only child. We'll talk about all the lines on another evening because I, I just love it. It's my favorite piece of Dharma writing. But if you can think about uh, just as a mother would console a child, and even you know if we had or didn't have that kind of a mother, we can imagine that. We're moved by pictures of mothers consoling children or fathers consoling children. I think we'll use the word console a lot more. Console and accommodate and accompany. What we do is we accompany each other through this life. The last line of the sutta, by the way, or one of the last lines, has the phrase, clarity of vision. The pure-hearted one having clarity of vision is not born again into this world. And leaving aside whether that means rebirths into successive lives or... For, for myself, the clearest way to understand rebirth, as much as I know about it now, is that I think I'm reborn moment to moment, uh, depending on my attitude and my mind state, moment to moment. And in, in every moment I'm conditioning the next moment that I am reborn into. Clarity of vision is not born again into this world. When my mind is clear, I don't stir it up with mistakes. So I want to talk a little bit about uh, the particular practice that we do here. We're doing so many practices here. We are doing the practice of being quiet. We're doing the practice of not doing very much. We're doing the practice of simplicity. We're doing the practice of not doing our electronics. 
I was here um, sitting for um, uh, a month this spring. I was really lucky to have a month to come and sit. And of course, I, I, I don't do the electronics. But I, I really noticed this time, I have my cell phone, uh, because I, you know, everybody has their cell phone in their pocket. And I actually had it in my room, and it was no lure to me, because I really, really was pleased to be disconnected from all that information. I like to have it because uh, when, I wa- when I hike on the hills, I like to have it in my pocket because I think to myself, I'm an old woman, I could trip. You know, I like to have the sense that I don't have to worry up here and I could call somebody. And I, th- and I actually felt very lucky to, have, to be hiking on the hills in a, on, in, a, in a time when you have a device that you don't need someone to go with you, you can call. But I haven't got the slightest impulse to check it during that time ever. I hope you're not thinking of checking cell phones. Four or five days into being here, I was sitting and walking and sitting and walking. All of a sudden, from one day to the next, I could feel my mind go, just way quieter than it had been before. And, you know, I was working away and doing all the techniques that I knew. But, but incrementally, all of a sudden, and I thought to myself, what did that incremental shift? And I thought, well, that must be the detox period for how long you need for all the information input coming in to stop when the mind gets it that it's really quiet now. There's nothing else to process and you don't need any more information. I went to Barry uh, in 1985 uh, because my teacher Sharon Salzberg had gone to Burma in 1984, maybe it was 85, 86, but it was right around there, and studied with Upandita and, and had learned this new intensive practice of metta. As Sally said last night, uh, in the years before that, the decade before that of my practice, um, metta uh, practice had been the last uh, 15 minutes, maybe, of a long mindfulness retreat. And uh, it did seem kind of like a greeting card. And I had avoided, uh, hadn't even had any desire to do it. And I knew people were starting, and I knew Sharon had gone to Burma to study. And I, I really was not interested in it. Uh, it was a time in my life and in my practice where for various reasons my mind and my body were quite stirred up and I didn't feel good and I was agitated and I was depressed and agitated that my meditation practice wasn't making me feel better than it was. Actually, I thought it was making me feel worse. I kind of had to put me back the way I was feeling for a while. And then I decided, I gave up. Finally, I thought, well, there's nothing left to try. I really don't feel good. I'll go study with Sharon. And uh, so I made up with her uh, to go to Barry. And actually, I was there when there was not a mindful uh, a meta retreat happening. There was a mindfulness retreat happening. But when you sit in a room, nobody knows what you're doing. And she said, you'll just see me every day, and I'll see you independently and privately, and you'll do the instructions that I tell you. So I was excited about that. And... Uh, I uh, went there, I settled in, and I went to see her. And the first time we talked, she she said, okay, before I give you instructions in the uh, phrases that you'll say and the way that you'll say them, 
uh, I'd like you to learn the benefits of metta. It's a piece of scripture that you can look up. Uh, there are 11 benefits of metta. I'll tell them to you, and you tell them back to me. We'll do them call and response, and you listen to it and think, if I could have one of these 11, which one would I like? Okay. People who practice metta sleep peacefully, wake peacefully, dream peaceful dreams. People love them. Angels love them. Angels will protect them. Poisons and weapons and fire won't harm them. Their faces are clear. Their minds are serene. They die unconfused. And when they die, their rebirth is in heavenly realms. You want that? <laughs> if you saw that on an advertisement for <laughs> on, on the cable news channel and, and showed you a bottle of pills and said, you take these, these are going to be the result of that, which one would you take? You remember them? You remember them? So... You, you pick out the one that you want. People who practice metta sleep peacefully, wake peacefully, dream peaceful dreams. People love them. Angels love them. Angels will protect them. Poisons and weapons and fire won't harm them. Their faces are clear. Their minds are serene. They die unconfused. And when they die, they rebirth is in heavenly realms. Okay? You got yours? You put your hand up at yours, okay? No changing, okay? Whatever is yours, that's yours. So you look around, see, you'll tell me which is the most we're going to now. There's no right answer, okay? Here you go. No changing. People who practice metta sleep peacefully, wake peacefully, dream peaceful dreams. People love them. Angels love them. Angels will protect them. Poisons and weapons and fire won't harm them. Their faces are clear. Their minds are serene. They die unconfused. And when they die, their rebirth is in heavenly realms. What do you think? What do you think won out? The last three were the tops. What do you think? Last three. Nobody put up their hands for poisons and weapons and fire won't harm them. You know what? You know, it's like those ads on television that said, do not try this at home. Uh, I never took that literally. I think what it means is that you are absolutely invulnerable. Absolutely invulnerable. You ha- your heart is invulnerable to suffering. Because you're, you have that clarity of vision and that connection to all beings. The important thing for me, there was no wrong answer, by the way, and I'm always touched by how everybody wants all of that. I want all of that. I would send away thirty-nine ninety five, 30-day <laughs> trial. Here's what happened to me, though. Sharon said, you need, to, you need to memorize this. So I went back to my room, and I sat down on the floor with my paper in front of me, and I 
and I read it out loud, and I read it out loud, and I kept them fast, just as I did it to you. That's why I can do it like that, because in that, in that next hour, I did it over and over and over again till I could do it with my eyes closed over and over and over and over and over again. And then when I knew that I knew it, because I can do it over and over and over and over again with eyes closed, I stopped. And my body felt much better. And my body that had had all kinds of peculiar feelings in it for a long time felt quite thrilled, just full of beautiful, streaming, quiet energy. And my mind felt at ease. And I thought, ah, so that's not the whole thing. It's not ah, just like that. But I really understood that if I th- in that moment, I knew this was going to be very good for me. And my confidence had a tremendous burst of enthusiasm and faith. But then when Sharon said, now say these phrases over and over again, I knew that the, that the important words there was say it again and again and again. And that the saying again and again and again has the effect on the mind of causing it to really push out all extraneous buzzings, old stories, old habits, old everything. Really the, the, um, the psychology of it is more elegant than push out. But really it, uh, uh, the concentrated mind has the antidote to all of the hindrances of sleepiness, of, of fogginess, of aversion, of lust, of um, doubt. The energy of concentration has antidotes to all of those, and all of those hindrances disappear. A mind filled with delight and faith and enthusiasm and um, confidence doesn't fall into stories about poor me, I'll never get better, why did I study with these people, look, my mind is a mess, why am I doing this? It all of a sudden has confidence and it not only knows I can feel better from now, but I can feel better, period. And I took it very seriously, that do it again and again and again. So as, as, we, uh, as we started during today, working from just really relaxing in this moment, relaxing into the sense when we can feel it or remember it or uh, bring it back from our memory of how it felt to love or be loved. We use that as the um, um, temple said it this afternoon to warm up the mind to get ready to actually really seriously concentrate it in a sweet way. It would work probably if the mind were concentrated, minds can get very concentrated on saying anything over and over and over again. But saying sweet wishes for oneself and somebody else concentrates the mind at the same time that it inclines it in the direction of goodwill. And good, the, the ability to wish well for other people is such a liberating feeling. I know in that moment that I am redeemed from getting stuck in my own story. When I'm stuck, it's always that I've been held captive by my own story. The story usually is a story of I like it or I don't like it. And, the, and those stories of I like it and I don't like it go away when the mind is steady and clear and sweet. 
because it feels good. It likes it fine. It's not having a problem with it. I think all day long we get challenged when the mind isn't that steady by one experience after another because as as you probably have been noticing all day long, we vary between something that happens that we're happy about. So, oh, good. For a moment, the ache in my back went away and I feel pretty good. Wow, that's terrific. I hope it stays. Let me just lean a little bit to the right. That's how I was. Maybe I can stay a little bit more to the right. Oh, fooey, now the left is hurting me. We, it's really hard to have a pleasant feeling and not go after it a little bit and get all tense about holding on to it. Or we have an unpleasant feeling. You look at the lunch and you see beans. Ah, going to have beans a whole week? Maybe they'll have beans a whole week. I can't eat beans. And on the back table is only cauliflower. Wow. It's going to be a terrible week. There won't be anything good to eat. What do I do? Is, is, as opposed, in contrast to, ah, beans. I'm not crazy about beans. Let's see what else I'll do. That all day long there are things that we say, oh, good. Wafui. And to be able to say, oh, that's something I really like. Let's see what happens next. Fooey, that's something I really don't like. Let's see what happens next. And not get carried away by them. Not be held hostage by oh great and oh fooey, which is what we're usually doing all day long. I think the mind is exhausted at the end of the day from I like it, I don't. That, you know. And what we get to see, actually, as you pay attention to it here, in this rarefied atmosphere, where do we have so much quiet to pay attention to our minds? We begin to see, really, it's true, that the mind that's held captive by every whim of I like it, I don't like it, is a mind that's stumbling in and out of suffering. Finally, oh, now I feel good. Okay, just relaxing in this moment. Ah, now my other side hurts. What will I do about that? Just relax, just relax. May, and better even than just relax is may I feel safe. May I feel happy. May I feel strong. May I live with ease. Those particular phrases of what I've been using recently, they carry the same essence that all of the other sets of phrases carry. I would really like to invite you to find a set of phrases that's not complex and stay with them. If You could spend the whole week editing the phrases, but it would be better to just pick four things to say that have that general context I, uh, some people like to say healthy, my exp- and that's fine, wonderful to say healthy. I would like to be healthy too, but I say strong instead because I realized after years and years of saying phrases that those phrases get engraved in my mind and they come up actually by themselves without my recalling them. If I'm in a tense situation, they start to play in the back of my mind like a, like, it's like there's a tripwire and... Uh, if, if, to go back to the airplane, the airplane starts to bounce. My phrases start to play in my mind because they go on when I'm when I'm suddenly tense, and I realize that I want my phrases to work until I'm in my end stages of my life, and I probably won't be healthy at that time. But I'd like to be as strong as I could be. I I have a friend who's 98, who's in the final probably weeks or months of her life, and when she can pick up her glass of water and drink it. She's strong enough to do that. She feels good. I want to feel strong. But anything you want to say that makes you feel 
this expresses how I want to feel. That would be good to do. Everything we do here promotes clarity of vision. We keep silence, which number one is less challenging because you don't have to respond to anybody. You don't have to think of what to say. We keep our own spaces. We're not doing the electronics so we don't have any more input than we need to have. It's just less complicated. I think we're habituated, a little bit addicted to stimuli. I'm amazed at how fast, as soon as uh, the, the plane lands, every single person whips out a cell phone, including me, truth to tell, to tell the people that are meeting me that I've landed. But they know I'm on that plane. I mean, I, I could wait a little bit. But I think we're just addicted to reestablishing that kind of, here I am. I think what happens as just by being here in the quiet, the mind settles down a little bit. You probably have noticed it after 24 hours that the body gets less jumpy. If somebody slams the door, you, you, you startle less. The mind gets less startleable when it's comfortable for some period of time, when it's fed enough and warm enough and it's slept enough, like a baby. When it's fed and warm and slept enough, it's more comfortable, it doesn't get so, it's, you can feel its little body relaxes. Your body relaxes when it's fed and warm and slept and not irritated by the people or the life around you. And then wisdom becomes more prominent. Things happen and you think, well, things happen. It's a complex life. The karma of everything is so complicated. I'm trying to think of a good example. Maybe you came and you felt great. You've been looking forward to this for so long. And you came and you woke up this morning with a cold. You think, ah, I waited so long to come and now I have a cold or a migraine or this or that. And it's very hard to say, you know what? That's what's happening. That's what happens in a life. You get migraines and colds and other kinds of things. How to be able to say, this is what's happening. Let's see what happens next. Relax. And especially when you don't feel good, it's such a motivator to say, may I feel safe? Not even to think about it. Not even to necessarily say this is what happens because then you can think, well, but why did it happen to me? Just straight for what was the antidote. May I feel safe. May I feel happy. May I feel strong. May I live with ease. We always want that to be true. You can't make a mistake. You can't make a mistake. It's always the antidote. I think what I want to say is the last instruction. One more thing and then the last instruction. One more thing is in addition to conditioning the mind, inclining it in the direction of goodwill and settling it down, that... uh, any thought I may have had before I took up the metta practice that mindfulness was really where you developed insights and psychological insights and really understood your mind and the habits of it, I came really to to really understand hidden parts of my mind and habits that 
I hadn't known about, surprisingly, through the, through the practice of attempting to wish well to different categories of people or different people in my life. I learned a lot. I continue to learn a lot about myself. You can't hide, actually, from this. Wishing well, omitting none, is a, a radical um, decision. The other thing that I'd like to uh, uh, invite you to use as a technique of practice is noticing delight and noticing, um, noticing delight, noticing beauty, noticing what it does to you, noticing how the mind picks up. Take a drink of, uh, of a sip of a new tea that you haven't had before, and it's really great. You think, oh, this, great. this tea is great, this is wonderful. You feel like a lift in your mind. You look around and you think, I hope everybody here is feeling delighted. Just spread around. When your mind gets picked up, give it away. Pass it on. You feel better with that. Then you're not just being delighted alone. You're being delighted and you're delighting everybody else. I am delighted to be here and that you're here and that we're all here. How enormously lucky we are. That, um, that sense of gratitude, like delight, is another thing that lifts up the mind. It's an awesome thing to be alive in a world. As troubled as this world is, it's an awesome thing to be alive. May we all and all beings come to the end of suffering. That's it, just for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.